0: listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Well, good morning. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Faith Church. And while I don't get to get up here uh, and preach very often, I always uh, am excited at the opportunity and am thankful that I get to open God's Word with you all this morning. Um, And so as we get started, we got to, you know, make sure we're aware of the context that we're in. Obviously, you can see the Christmas trees and the garland up here that we are full-blown in Christmas mode, even here at Faith Church. You know, Thanksgiving is in the rear view and doesn't matter if you are before Thanksgiving or after Thanksgiving uh, in terms of when you start listening to Christmas music. We're all there now. And so uh, we are... Looking at our Advent series, we're taking a break uh, from the book of Acts. If you've been with us at all in the last few months, we've been in Acts for a while, and after Advent, we'll be in Acts again. Uh, But we're taking a break to focus for four weeks on these theological reflections, these theological questions about Christmas. Uh, And so, the first question that we want to tackle together as we think about Christmas and why we celebrate it is this question of why do we need a Savior? If Jesus came to be the Savior of the world, why do we need a Savior? And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, I want you, not just kids, but adults as well, to picture the darkest moment of your life. And by that, I don't mean emotional or spiritual darkness. Just where was it where you, were, you couldn't see anything? And for me, that was like when I was in fifth grade and I was in Mammoth Cave. We took a a tour to Mammoth Cave, and at part of the tour, they told us what was going to happen, but we were in this big cavern that had all these lights, and as part of the tour, they just turned off all the lights. And it didn't matter how long you waited for your your eyes to get adjusted, you could not see your hand in front of your face. But then slowly, starting with the smallest little light, they turned it on, and it gave light to everything in the room. That the smallest little flicker gave light to everything. And so this idea of light piercing through the darkness is what we're trying to unpack this morning in Luke chapter 1. And and as we get to this text, we want to orient ourselves to to two things. First is we want to orient ourselves to the person of Zechariah. Who is he? What's going on with him? Why is he the place where Luke starts his gospel? Why does he start with Zechariah? And the second thing we want to orient ourselves to is Luke's audience, right? Luke is writing both this gospel and this history, which is the book of Acts, this two-part series. On He wants to give an orderly account of the things that happened, uh, but it is also a theological history. So he's telling things as they happen, but he has a reason for telling them as he tells it. And so that's what we want to think about. And so first, let's think about Zechariah. Who is he, and what do we know about him? Well, if you see in the text, or if you heard as it was read, um, that it says that Zechariah was a priest. He was in the division of Abijah, and he also had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So pretty standard background information on someone you're introducing to your audience, to your readers, right? Here's this guy, Zechariah. And then notice what it is said of them. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, to us, that might sound like one thing. They're righteous and walking blamelessly. Uh, But it's actually two different things. That they are both righteous before God, their heart posture, how they have oriented their lives, have been in communion and relationship with God, And in addition, they are walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So their heart is in the right place, and they are fulfilling the law as God required it to do everything that is required of them in the law, all the sacrifices and all these things. So they are model citizens of God's kingdom. They are righteous and blameless. And so if you're reading and you're familiar with Old Testament literature and narrative, but oh, well then these people must be blessed. And as you can remember, it says verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. See, children are a a gift from the Lord. That's absolutely true. But specifically in Judean literature, it was often seen that the more children you have, the more blessed by God you are. And if you have no children, then it's actually a reproach against you. And that's not at all how God operates, but that was kind of the, the thought of the day. So these two things don't make sense, that they are righteous, and yet they don't have any children. So it comes time where Zachariah is going to serve his duty as the priest. He's not a high priest. He's just from the division of Abijah, and they, all the different divisions of priests had uh, their rotations where they would take their time and, and do their duty, and then they'd be off rotation for a while, and then when they get the division together, it's their time. They cast lots. The lots fall to Zechariah, So he goes into the temple to offer incense, and this is the high point of his career as a priest. Just for what he is, this is the best it will ever get, is being able to offer incense in the temple. And while everyone is praying and worshiping outside and he's offering incense in the temple, something happens. And there appears before him an angel. An angel, a messenger of the Lord, comes before him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah, reasonably, is a little shocked, a little surprised, but it says he's also Fearful and troubled. And we want to think about what's going on with Zechariah, that there's this angel before him. Obviously, he's surprised. But we want to remember the context that Zechariah is in. And the context specifically is that it has been 400 years since God has sent a prophet or messenger to directly communicate something to his people. It's been 400 years of silence. And yet here and now, in this moment, there's an angel, a messenger from God before him. So there's this pressure building. Okay, I'm in the temple. There's an angel before me. This must be pretty important. And what does the angel say? Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. God broke 400 years of silence to say this to Zechariah, a priest. And what's going on here is that this angel is communicating to Zechariah that, one, your prayers have been answered, but also that this son of yours will have a specific purpose in God's plan. And it's also interesting to think about the fact that this is probably not a prayer that Zechariah was praying the night before. That this was more than likely prayers that he and Elizabeth had prayed years before when they were younger and still able to have children— and yet now, it's probably something that he's forgotten all about. And we kind of can assume that based on his reaction later, where he kind of laughs in the angel's face and says, yeah, this isn't going to happen. But God's timing is not always our timing. So, he tells him to give the name John to their new son. And what's important to note about this is naming a child is, even for us still, like it's a very important role that a parent has. It can even be a little intimidating when you think about what it means. But um, for, for this situation, Zachariah and Elizabeth are going to give him the name John, which is given to them by God, given to John by God, which means he is set apart for a purpose, not for your purposes. And, and we see that as we continue hearing what the angel says to Zachariah. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So, the, the reference to not drinking wine and strong drink, that's the Nazarite vow. That's the same vow that Samson took in the Old Testament, where they refrain from certain things to wholly devote themselves to the Lord's service. So, even before Uh, This baby is born. The angel is telling Zechariah, by the way, he is set apart for a specific purpose for what God is doing. But he doesn't end there. Not only will he be filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he's in his mother's womb, verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what is this purpose? What is he coming to do? Why is God breaking 400 years of silence to talk to a priest named Zechariah, to communicate to him so that he knows about what John is going to do and what is the answer to that? He's going to come and preach a message of repentance. That this spirit of Elijah that he is mentioning is this idea that Elijah came and preached a message of repentance to a wicked generation in Israel, to wicked kings, and God used him to bring about revival for a time in the people of Israel. And so John is going to be doing the same thing. He is bringing this message of repentance to the people of Israel. And obviously not everyone will listen, but enough will. And that there will be this reconciliation that takes place, this repentance that takes place, both in the horizontal relationships with one another, but also in the vertical relationships between the people and their God. There at the end, it says uh, that he will come in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So we see that there's going to be this reconciliation of relationship, that fathers and children will be reconciled, families and neighbors will be reconciled, but also the disobedient, they will be reconciled and their relationships will be restored by following the wisdom of the just. And what's going to, what's going to be the end result of what's happening? It's going to be that the people are going to be prepared. Now, prepared for what? Well, that's future weeks. But what we see right now, if you're reading Luke's gospel for the first time, you don't really know anything about Jesus. What do we see in this text that kind of points us to something that's going to happen? Something's going to happen. Well, the first little clue we see is this mention that Elizabeth was barren. If you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, anytime there is a woman who is said to be barren, our antenna should go up to say, all right, God's about to enter the picture. God's about to do something. Because whether it was Abraham and Sarah or Hannah uh, or the mother of Samson uh, or Elizabeth here or Mary, we see God entering and bringing life from where it seemed impossible. And so that's kind of the first clue that we see from um, looking at this in terms of uh, Luke's audience. And this other idea of this people prepared— that they're, what are they prepared for? Something's going to happen, but we don't know exactly what. So we know that God's going to enter the picture, but I think the question we then ask is why? Why is God entering the picture now? And to, to answer that question, we have to think about a certain framework, a certain worldview that Zechariah and Luke and all of Luke's audience all kind of operated within And it's this overarching story that you and I find ourselves to be a part of as well. And that is that just as this this angel abruptly entered into the temple and this light pierced through the darkness after 400 years, there was a time when light pierced through the darkness for the first time. And that was in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form, and there was nothing really going on. But God, by the word of his mouth, spoke, and light happened. And then he puts stars and planets in orbit around the sun, and he creates the earth, and he separates the water from the land and the sky from the ground, and he fills all of these habitats with different creatures and animals and all these things he creates by speaking, and he looks at it and says, it is good. But then his crowning achievement of creation was to create man. And man he formed from the dust of the ground and he breathed into Adam the breath of life. But for the first time he actually said it is not good for man to be alone. And so God creates a helper suitable for him. And he puts Adam and Eve in the garden and he gives them authority to fill and subdue the earth and to be his stewards of everything he created. And he gives them a purpose. And so this is the first aspect of this framework that we need to understand is that we are created with a purpose. We're created with purpose, just like Adam and Eve were, just as John was created. We are created with purpose. But we know how the story goes. We fall short of that purpose. See, God told Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree, any fruit that is good for food, you can eat of anything except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of it, or in the day that you do, you will surely die. We know what happens. Last night, I was, I was reading uh, our Advent devotional with our two older girls, and uh, it got to this moment, right, where... Eve takes the, the fruit of the tree and eats it and gives it to her husband who is with her. And they both kind of realize what they'd done. And so, I, you know, this Advent devotional is kind of doing the same thing we're doing right now. We're placing ourselves in the story, seeing how the story fits together. And when it got to that moment where Eve took the fruit and ate it, Hazel, who is five and a half, just goes, oh, darn like, yeah, oh no, we, we, she kind of like knew she'd heard this story before, but she knew it wasn't a good thing. And unless we think that we're any different, we would have sprinted to that tree because we're all creatures of sin. We are, we have the sinful nature within us. And that's just the, the world we live in, the, the brokenness of the world we live in. So yeah, we fall short of that purpose that, that God has for us. And Adam and Eve, when they take from that tree, when they do what they should not have done, what is that first thing that hits them, smacks them in the face? All familiar thing, shame. They immediately realize they were naked, and they go run and hide and try to make garments to cover themselves. And their, their life is then, from that point forward, marked by shame. I could still remember the first time I ever got behind the wheel of a car, and it's because of the shame associated with it. See, I was 16. I had my driver's permit, and I had kind of been wanting to get out with my dad to you know, learn how to drive so I could start going to all the places I want to go. And I hadn't gone out yet, but there was one day where we needed to do some reshuffling of the cars in the driveway, a phenomenon I'm sure you're all too familiar with. And uh, so I was pulling out the family van so my dad could get a different car out of the driveway, and I thought my foot was on the brake, but it was actually on the accelerator. And as I'm backing uh, into our cul-de-sac, I accelerated right into our neighbor's car. I was parked there. And both cars were pretty well totaled. Um, And our neighbors were mulching in their front yard, so they saw the whole thing. And I can, there's so many moments of this day, of this experience that are ingrained in my brain because of the shame, right? That the shame that I felt, I can picture the look on my dad's face. I can just imagine, like that sinking feeling that you have in your gut when you know you've done something wrong and there's nothing you can do to change it was just, oh, I can still feel it. And shame is something that we're all too familiar with. And so I I honestly, I just couldn't deal with it. I I parked the car on the curb and, and then I just like ran into the woods behind my family's house. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't talk to my dad. I couldn't face him. I like, I knew he was upset, figured he'd be angry. I just, I could not even face my neighbors to say, you know, apologize. I couldn't do any of that. And uh, I'll come back to this story a little bit later, but I think even when shame happens because of honest mistakes, right? It's not like I sinned against my dad by making this mistake. This is just the broken world we live in. Even shame like that can often drive us more than what is actually true of us. So we were created with a purpose. We've fallen short of that purpose. But we also have hope. Because God has promised that someone is coming to restore that purpose. Even in the curse that God gives to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, there is this line that most people refer to as the first gospel. The first gospel in the whole Bible is this line where when he is telling the serpent what the curse is, he says, I will put enmity between you and and your offspring and the offspring of the woman, and you will strike his heel, but he will crush your skull. So, from the very beginning of sin entering the world, in the darkest moment till we get to Zechariah, and even still to now, there is this promise that God has given that he is going to deal with sin. He's not giving up on Adam and Eve. He's not giving up on mankind. And that he is going to deal with sin in a way that we are never able to. And so we need a Savior. Not just to deal with the effects of sin, like shame or the consequences of sin, but we need a Savior to deal with the very problem of sin. And the problem of sin is that We have a perfectly holy and righteous God who can have nothing to do with our sin and failure. We cannot be in his presence. We cannot approach his throne. And we are destined for eternity separated from him him forever. No amount of money, hard work, technology, government policy, well wishes, or good intentions will ever solve the problem of sin. And so that's what we see kind of unfolding here in Luke chapter one with Zechariah. is that he's aware of this context. He's aware of this framework that there will be an offspring of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent, but they're still waiting. They're still waiting. They have not seen what is coming yet. And yet we get to look back and see exactly what that was because we know that John is not the world's savior. And I think even Zechariah and Elizabeth knew that John was not the world's savior. But he is preparing the people of God for him to enter. And so this hope, this hope in a restored purpose, this hope has a name. And his name is Jesus. So for us, I think there's, there's two things that I think we need to come to terms with. The first is that we have to admit that we cannot be our own savior. I have to admit I cannot save myself. You have to admit you cannot save yourself. doesn't matter how hard you try, all the good things you do, all the ways you give back to others or try to live a morally good life. It does not matter. You cannot save yourself. And for Many of us in this room, we've come to that realization that we look to Jesus. We celebrate at Christmas not just that Jesus came as a baby, but that he lived and died. He lived the life that we couldn't live perfectly. He died the death that we deserved, and we look to Jesus and say, absolutely, Jesus, you are my Savior. You are my Lord, and that's amazing, but if that's the truth, If we look to Jesus to say, you are my Savior, you are my Lord, then why do I, why do we let ourselves be defined by shame? Shame is the devil's game. Shame wants to name us and say that this is who you are. You are your worst mistake. You are known by all the things that you fail at. But if what is true of us is that we are bought with a price, then why do we allow shame and mistakes and our sin to define us? See, the story of my first car accident uh, doesn't end there. In fact, if you look in all the records of Miami Township, Ohio, for my driving record, you will see no mention of it. It does not exist on my record because in that moment, after I had run away, my dad had um, gone over, talked to the neighbors, got their permission, also don't know how legal this was, but it's the story, Uh, and he put that accident on his account. That if you look at my account, it is free from it. He said, put it on my account. And so while I had incurred a debt that I could not repay, my dad paid it. And so as much as I kind of cringe and hate this story of the first time I ever got behind the wheel of a car, I am thankful Because it reminds me, whether it's shame I'm experiencing as a result of an honest mistake, or it's shame I'm experiencing as a result of my sin, or the ways that I feel like I haven't lived up to be the father I want to be, the husband I want to be, the friend or the pastor, right? All these ways that I can be, let myself be defined by what I'm not. This story, what happened to me with my father, points me to my heavenly father, who when I had incurred a debt that I could not repay, he said, I'll pay it. I'm going to pay it with the price of my own son. And so why will I let my anger and my anxiety define me? Why am I going to let my lust or my failure or my shame define me when God is the one who paid the price for my sin? He gets the one, is the one who gets to define me. He is the one who defines me. So as we confess our sins to our Father, as we confess our sins and have fellowship with one another, we are reminded that we are not named by our shame, but we are named by our Heavenly Father. As that is the beauty of the gospel, is that we realize we need a Savior. We absolutely need a Savior, and we have one in the person of Jesus. So this is why we have hope in a restored purpose. This is why Zechariah and Elizabeth have hope, is because Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have indeed seen us in our failed estate. You have seen and looked upon our sin and our shame and our brokenness and our guilt. And amidst all that, you have said, I'm going to enter the picture. You sent light to pierce through the darkness, to enter into time and space by sending your own son. So, Father, we thank you that we have indeed been given this gift, this gift of Jesus and as a result of that, we can celebrate and we can have hope to have relationship with you. But Father, I pray that you would help us to leave our sin and our shame and everything else on the altar because we know that you have indeed named us. You have named us as your sons and daughters. Help us to live in that freedom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.